Good morning. That last uh, hymn was in my head all morning this morning, and I was thinking, oh, I wonder, you know, if, often, if I don't sing it today, I'll have to listen to it on the way home. So thanks, Andrew. I appreciate that. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to continue in what we began some time ago in this return from captivity for the children of Israel. Uh, the children of Israel at this point in time have been in the land for a number of years. Uh, they were basically idle on building the temple, and the Lord raised up Haggai and Zechariah to prophesy to the people to get them back to work, uh, that they needed to repent, not only of their lack of work that's been done, but their hard hearts that have been towards the Lord. And we see that at this point in time, they have repented, work on the temple has begun again, and now Zechariah has been in this one night receiving a number of visions. Uh, there are eight visions total that he sees in what we assume to be one night. Uh, so we left off actually after the fourth vision, so he's still experiencing all this stuff. We kind of left him hanging. Um, but we'll pick up at the end of the fourth vision to kind of see a little transition that we have here. Uh, last time I, I touched real briefly on this fourth vision, but it is my favorite of the the eight that we have. So we're going to begin reading in Zechariah 3, verse 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity and you from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch." For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Uh, this is just, like I say, it's my favorite vision in Zechariah. It, it gives like this perfect picture of this man who is standing before the throne, Satan at his right hand accusing him, and he is dressed in filthy garments. Um, they weren't just dirty, they were filthy. Uh, we think of old days in outhouses. Imagine running a garment through a bottom of an outhouse and then putting it on. Um, that's basically what he was standing in, in front of the throne of God, and Satan was there accusing him. And of course, what Satan was saying is, this man is filthy, he is not able to stand before you. And we see the Lord speak and rebuke Satan and instruct that clean clothes be given to him. And we see Zechariah gets so caught up in the moment, he chimes in from where he's standing, and he says, put a clean turban on his head too. 
Um, and so we see that there's a fair mitre put on his head. And we see Joshua really as a representative of the people, as the high priest standing before God. And at the end of the chapter, we see that this is a sign given to him that the Lord is going to bring forth his servant, the branch. Uh, the branch is a common messianic title. Uh, we see it in Isaiah, we see it in Jeremiah, and we see it here in Zechariah. We'll see it again, Lord willing, this evening, and we're going to kind of focus a little bit more on the branch tonight. So I'm not going to go into too much detail on the branch here, um, but keep that in mind for tonight. Because the question that is asked is, what gives God the right to instruct clean clothes be given to Joshua the high priest? It's just because God decided, just God said so, so it, so it happens. Uh, we see that it has something to do with the branch. It has something to do with this coming servant that makes all of this possible. And we see that it says, there's a stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. And this gives hint to a millennial kingdom. We see it in a number of different passages, those that come to rest under the shade of this vine or this fig tree. Uh, so we see that after this iniquity has been wiped away, that there will be peace on earth. And the children of Israel will finally be able to uh, be the head of the nations and be able to relax um, under this vine and fig tree. So we just wanted to talk about that real briefly. Remember, you know, we know many of us have read through the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so all of this is starting to sound kind of familiar. We know uh, of the Day of Atonement, that it symbolizes that one day all of Israel, the Israel that is left, will see the Lord descend and put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And it says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And it says, in that day, he will wipe away their iniquity because they will believe. They will see him and they will know that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the, the king that was come to reign. So this is something that we know, but Revelation obviously wasn't written for almost 600 years after this. So we have a little bit of an advantage, a little bit more revelation from God, but this is what is being laid out so early. Uh, this is something that's been given to Zechariah, and we see that from this vision to the next vision, there's a, there's a little bit of a break. And we can kind of look at these first four visions as summing up the end for Israel, what Israel will see in the end. They'll see all of their enemies put down with the four um, horns and the four craftsmen, They'll see the measuring line being drawn out. This kingdom will be immeasurable without walls. The Lord will protect them, and they will see all of their iniquity put away. When we get into this fifth vision, it's kind of more dealing with what's going on with Israel at the current time. And we'll see that there's certain things God is doing through these visions to show and to give comfort for them in the here and now. Uh, kind of like us, when we look at our lives and we think of our lives for the Lord, you know, it is difficult when suffering, it is difficult when going through a, a tough time to think of the glories that will come, the glories that we have in Christ, the things that will be, that does encourage us, uh, but to know that there's going to be some relief right now uh, is encouraging also. And so that's what God's going to give Zechariah through these next visions, um, that he would be encouraged and be able to encourage the people right now. 
So like I said, we've already gone over chapter 3 before, but I just wanted to touch on it because here in chapter 4, um, just these, these first couple of verses, uh, it says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to, set to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Um, so we see that there's this state that Zechariah goes into where it's almost like he's, he falls asleep and he has to be awakened. It's not that he did fall asleep. It was as he had fallen asleep. Uh, so it's something similar to that. We don't exactly know what that really means. But from sheer, perhaps, exhaustion of being uh, witness to all of these visions, uh, the angel comes by and almost like uh, picks him up, kind of gives him some strength, that there's more, more to see, that this wasn't all he was going to be given, that there was still more to come. And so he wakens up Zechariah, and he says, what do you see? Uh, it's interesting the structure of these things, how they play out. There's often a question asked, what do you see? And then Zechariah is going to say what he sees, and he may ask a question, or the, this interpreting angel may say, do you understand what you see? And he says, no, I have no idea what I'm looking at. And I think we have a principle being laid out here. Uh, if we come to the word of God and we simply just read it and say, eh, you know, that's, that's just what I see. That's what it says. And you say, oh, do you understand what it means? Like, yeah, I understand what it means. We may miss out on what follows. We may not fully grasp what we're really meant to see. And there's certain things in here that it, it appears that had Zechariah said, yeah, I, I, I understand, that maybe there wouldn't have been an exchange and we wouldn't have this in the word of God. But with these men of God, what we notice is that they do question. And if they don't understand, they don't understand. I have, they, they just say, I don't know what's going on. And that's okay. Uh, you know, we, don't, we don't know it all. And there's certain things in here that I don't understand. And we're, we'll get to that. And if you understand, then we can clear it up. But, uh, so we'll, we'll make that clear today. So he asked him, what do you see? And so Zechariah just says, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pi pipes to the seven lamps. So this is what he sees first, and this is extremely hard to picture. Um, so he gives you this thing of this lampstand, a bowl on top. You have seven lamps, and you have these pipes that go to these seven lamps. How they're all arrayed and how it's all drawn out, there's a, there's a big disagreement, actually, on how it really looks and I don't know, but this is essentially what he's seeing, a lampstand, all these pipes, and all of these lamps on it, seven lamps. And he sees two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left, and he sees these two olive trees standing up, and we're going to notice that from these olive trees, there is a branch that is dripping constant oil into this bowl that's feeding these seven lamps. So the one thing we'll notice in these visions is it's the meaning that's important. And, and this is what's hard. The vision isn't necessarily as important as the meaning behind it. Uh, the vision is just meant to help us understand, to, to give us a picture. So sometimes when we come to the word of God and we have certain parables or we have certain stories, we try to make everything mean something. 
And that's really not the point of what God's trying to do. God's trying to convey one particular message to the people. And we'll see here that the number of things that are listed in this vision, they're not really explained all that well, but the meaning is given. And so we can kind of assume from the meaning what is meant by the picture. So this is what he sees, the two olive trees. Verse 4, So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Uh, again, uh, he gets asked, do you know what the, these are? And it, it's not really explained. Uh, he just says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So in that position, sometimes when you ask somebody a question and someone says, don't you know? You have a tendency to say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about something else. Um, you know, but yeah, I get that. I know what you're talking about. So again, just the willingness to admit ignorance is key. Um, it, it, you know, that's the first step in learning. And people will often maybe feel hesitant to come up and to tell me I'm wrong on something. Uh, we, we have a, a thing with confrontation. There's a few here that I'm thankful for that aren't afraid of, of confrontation. Because if, if there's something wrong, it needs to be corrected. Because ultimately, we're not trying to lift up one another. We're trying to lift up the Lord. And so only what's right is what's glorifying. Um, we need to do it in a polite, loving way. Um, but it's important to get to the truth of the scripture. And there's going to be disagreements. Um, but those disagreements shouldn't divide us. Uh, we should be able to come to a clear understanding based on the main point of what's being discussed. We don't see Zechariah and this angel arguing over, well, I think it means these pipes here mean this, and this angel saying, no, well, I think it means this over here. We're, we're focused on the meaning of this picture because ultimately it's just a message to the people, a message to Zerubbabel on the fact that God is behind them and it's not going to be accomplished by his own power, um, which really is, we would say we know that, but sometimes we don't act like we know that. Um, nothing can be accomplished spiritually unless it's done by the Spirit of God. Th that is just fact. Um, even though we know that, there's still something inside of us that wants to strive and achieve something outside of this God-given strength. And we see with Zerubbabel in his mind right now, he's facing this difficulty of he's trying to build this temple. And there's opposition. There's people around him that don't want him to build a temple. Remember, there are no walls in Jerusalem. They are open for anyone to attack them. They have no army. They have no military might. They are just a small remnant of people. If anybody wanted to come and destroy them, it could simply be done. And Zerubbabel may be thinking, I need to make all of these plans, these strategic moves to make sure that we can protect ourselves and build this temple. And God is simply telling him that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. 
Things aren't going to be accomplished because Zerubbabel tries really, really hard. Things are going to be accomplished because God said he was going to do it. And we can trust in that. As we trust in that, the work is glorifying to God. Because they would look around and say, you know, this has to be the work of the Lord. So we have this, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Uh, this thing here, who are you, O great mountain? Uh, we often think of mountains as opposition. Uh, to climb over a mountain is harder than walking you know, through a nice valley. And so what's being said here is God isn't denying that there's opposition. But he's saying it doesn't matter how big the mountain is. I'm going to make it a plane, something that's easy to walk through. I'm going to do it. Not Zerubbabel, go climb that mountain and work really hard and try to achieve these things. God has simply given instruction in Zerubbabel simply to push forward, knowing that God, when he gets to this opposition, is going to flatten it out for him. Uh, so he doesn't need to worry. So we have this, you shall become a plane, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The capstone meaning kind of the finishing piece. Um, Zerubbabel himself is going to complete this temple. This isn't a work that he's simply starting and then it's going to be passed on to the next generation and generation and generation. Zerubbabel is going to see the temple finished and it's going to be a, a, a big triumph for the people of God there, this, this small teeny remnant. When we think of the original temple that Solomon built, all of the money, all of the planning that went into it, all of the, the, the people that were able to build, this is just a teeny tiny remnant building this temple with no protection, with really no funds other than what was given to them. And they see this accomplished because of the hand of God. So moving on in verse 8. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these, seven, for these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh, so we have here, in case he wasn't clear enough, in verse 7, that, he should, that Zerubbabel will bring the capstone. Uh, in, the, in the back of their mind, sometimes there's still doubt. You know, when God simply tells you something, our tendency isn't always just to believe it 100% and keep moving. Uh, sometimes we need more. And that's why throughout the scripture, normally things are mentioned more than once. Uh, they really want to, the Lord really wants to make sure that you understand that you get it. And we're here, it says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Uh, just again, to be more clear of this, this one man who is, remember, Zerubbabel would have been king. Um, he was of the line of David. He was in that messianic line. Uh, if Israel had not gone astray and worshipped idols and, and refused to let the land rest, uh, Zerubbabel would have been king of Jerusalem. And now he's in this position where there's 50,000 people and he's just looked at as kind of like a governor, a civil ruler for the place. And there's a lot of blessing that's being bestowed on Zerubbabel, um, even though he doesn't have this position and title and throne as king. Um, he's given a great deal of blessing from the Lord. So uh, don't despise maybe the position you're in. Uh, God desires to bless the lowly, the people that maybe didn't get the best hand. 
we see it says the, the one question in verse 10, for who has despised the day of small things? I've heard this a, a, a number of ways. Uh, some, sometimes we glory in the small things, and I don't think it's, it's okay. I mean, I don't think that's the point of it. But I think the point is not to despise the day of small things. We tend to despise the day of small things. Um, in the world's eyes, this is a small thing, what we're doing right now. We, we get together on a Sunday morning uh, to, to look through the Bible and to see the truth that God has laid out, and the world will look at it and say, I'd rather go to the beach, or I'd rather sit at home and watch TV, or I'd rather sleep in, or I'd, I'd rather do something else. This is such a small thing in the grand scheme of things. Um, those tend to be the people that despise the day of small things. Uh, we know that in the day of Zechariah, when people looked at the temple that had seen the original temple, we've seen a number of times that they despised it. They thought, how little this temple is, and what's the point of building it, and what, what good will come of it? You know, it, it's so small compared to what was before. And they constantly have to be reminded that this is the Lord's work. You know, th- this, this construction of the temple has been recorded in the word of God and will be here for all eternity. Uh, you know, there's nothing that anybody else did during this time that matches with this building of the temple uh, because it's not recorded and because nobody has any idea if it's not in the Bible what really happened there. So the people that despised this day of small things didn't realize that they were looking down on the work of God. Um, So don't think what we do here is small. Don't despise what, what goes on here. You know, there are many people in this building that prayed for me for a number of years to trust Christ and to get saved. A number of years. Wednesday in and Wednesday out, uh, when I came to mind, things like that. And it, I mean, people prayed for five, almost six years before I trusted Christ. And to the world, that might seem like a small thing. To me, it's everything. I mean, it, I'm as thankful for that as I'm as thankful for anything. So we have to think of it this way with this evangelistic effort we're trying to do. There are thousands of people in this city. Thousands of people that would look at what we're doing and what we want to do, going door to door and preaching the gospel, that it would be a small thing. But to the one person that gets saved, it is the biggest deal in this universe. We have to keep that in mind. Don't look at what we're doing as something small. Don't despise what we're doing. Those days when you're tired, those days when it's hard, believe me, I understand. I know what it is to go outside and work and and be in the sun all day and come home and Noah's running around and Kathy wants to take a nap because she's exhausted, pregnant and watching him. And it's like, we gotta hurry up and eat and we gotta get to prayer meeting, you know? I know it's hard, (laughs) but it's not a small thing. It's a very, very big thing. And we have here people missed out. There were people at this time that that didn't have the right attitude and really missed out on the blessing that God was providing at that given time. Uh, This is an opportunity, I believe, in this small assembly, uh, as as small as it is and as insignificant to the world as it is, uh, God is very, very interested with what goes on here. And not only what goes on here, 
but what goes on in individual lives. That we tend to think, uh, if I just commit this sin today, uh, I won't do it tomorrow, or I won't do it the next time. I won't. Turning away from sin pleases God. It's not a small thing. It's a huge thing. We have no idea the angels, principalities, and powers that are watching us. And every moment we turn away from sin, it glorifies the Lord Jesus. Because we don't do it in our own power. Because we don't have enough power. It's by the Spirit of God. So in day-to-day life, let's not despise the day of small things. We have here, finishing verse 10, For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, uh, meaning the seven eyes that are on this stone. And we think of this stone comes from Daniel. The seven eyes speaking of the uh, fullness of the Spirit of God, the eyes speaking of the thing that sees. So this, when we think about it, these seven eyes are meant to keep an eye on everything. But all seven will be focused on the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand when the work is complete. All these eyes that are meant to see everything else, but God is most focused on his people doing his work in the world. Um, So they they rejoice to see it. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. I'm going to pick up in verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Uh, We see two questions asked, uh, one answer given. So take that as you will. But he asked this question, Of everything that Zechariah has seen, there's two things he wants to know. What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? So you picture these olive trees again and these branches that come off that are dripping the oil into this bowl. And Zechariah wants to know, Well, what do these mean? Um, We think of the lampstand representing the testimony of Israel, the testimony of God in, in the world. Uh, We often think of the lampstand and the light speaking of God's testimony going out for people to see. And we see that the testimony is fueled by this oil that we know is the spirit of God. But the question is, what are these two olive trees on the side? Um, Because it speaks so frequently of Joshua and Zerubbabel, people have made the assumption that these two olive trees could be these offices of king and priest and the branches at the certain time dripping oil could be Joshua and Zerubbabel. There would be many branches on this olive tree, but at this current time, king and priest, Joshua and Zerubbabel as the branches. If you go to Revelation, uh, I believe it's chapter 11. Don't quote me on that, but it talks about the two witnesses. And when it speaks of the two witnesses before the Lord, it speaks of them as his two olive trees. Uh, so we, didn't, we wouldn't assume that those are necessarily the king and priest, but they are the two witnesses that Lord had, the Lord has placed on the earth at that time. Um, so this is where uh, these are the people that everyone is to look to to gain insight from God. Um, so that is this vision here of 
these, the slam stand and the two olive trees. And really the point of this vision is to show that the temple will be completed and Zerubbabel is going to finish it. Uh, that's the encouragement for the here and now. Again, we're not so far looking so far ahead. It's right here, right now. This man you know, Zerubbabel, is going to finish the temple. Okay, we're going to keep going. In, ver- in chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. So again, we have a vision. And if you have the old King James translation, I think it might say roll, a flying roll. Uh, It's really just a scroll. And um, he gives the measurements, which is really interesting. Um, I often ask a lot of questions when I'm reading the Bible. And I think it's the the best way to, to learn is to ask questions and find the answers. And so we have here um, measurements given, and my question would be, why does it give me the measurements? Why not just say a flying scroll? Like, I can imagine how big it is, but he gives me these measurements, so I go and I look, and I see that the holy place is measured at 20 by 10 cubits. And then we see that Solomon's porch is measured at 20 by 10. So both measurements in the Bible have to do with the house of God. And what's interesting is if we look at 1 Peter 4.17, you don't have to flip there, it's just one verse I'm going to read. It says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will it be, what will be the end of those for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Uh, speaks of the judgment beginning at the house of God, um, these measurements. So we can infer, we can't stand firm on anything, but we can see that these measurements were given for some reason, otherwise they probably wouldn't be there. And when we look through it, we see that both references reference the temple of the Lord, or the tabernacle. And so what we have here is this flying scroll, pretty good sized measurements when we think of, of 20 by 10, it's what, uh, 30 by 15, 30 by 15, so pretty good size uh, scroll in the air. And then we have in verse three, then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. Uh, this idea of perjurer is taking the Lord's name in vain, uh, and we'll see that as we continue on in this, in this portion here. What's interesting is this is the curse that goes out not just over Israel, but over the face of the whole earth. So he sees this scroll flying in the air. And when we think of something flying, we think of something that has some speed to it, that it's going fairly fast. And we see that he can read something on one side of the scroll, and he could read something on the other side of the scroll. It doesn't mean that's all that's written there, but that these things that they're able to read represent this side, and these things he's able to read represent this side. What's interesting, if we think back to the Ten Commandments, we think of the Ten Commandments as written on two tablets. Uh, One kind of dealing with commandments that go upward towards God and our offense towards God, and these commandments that deal with our neighbor. So obviously when the Lord says, you know, you need to love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your strength, that will represent this tablet, and to love your neighbor as yourself will represent this whole tablet. We have a scroll here, two sides, two sides, 
And it says, um, every thief and every perjurer, everyone that takes the name of the Lord in vain, would represent the two middle commandments on those tablets. Um, we would see that the third commandment for against the Lord would be to not take his name in vain. And the third commandment over here is not to steal. So these may be referencing this whole piece here. So as this curse goes out for everyone to see, um, it goes out through the whole earth. You might say that the Ten Commandments were only given for the children of Israel. And I would say... In a sense, yes, they were given. Israel came into this covenantal relationship based on all the commandments that God had laid out that if they would obey, they would receive certain blessings. But there's certain things in these commandments that show us the character and nature of sin and our need for a Savior. So it's not that we're going to be condemned because of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are actually supposed to help us and point us to the fact that we need a Savior. Uh, we're, we're condemned because of our sin. And the sin, could be, the sin could be against our own conscience. The sin could be um, against, against God's judgment, going against our own thinking. Um, but by nature, we are sinners. And this is how it's revealed to us. It says, in verse 4, I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. Not only will it destroy the individual, but it's going to destroy all the individual has. Um, the curse is, is so intense that it not only affects the person, but it affects all that they possess. So as we're going through this, this portion, and we're thinking of all of these visions taking place, we have to remember, we've just been shown that it, we're not going to achieve anything by our own might or by our own power. We're going to achieve things by the Spirit of God. Well, why would we try to achieve something without the Spirit of God? Uh, we do so because we don't think the Lord's going to give it to us or that we have to get it by our own means. And so right after this, we see a, a judgment taking place that if we're going to do it by our own means, be careful how we go about it because this is a curse that comes to every house. What we also see based on these visions, and we see it starting with Joshua, is that there's a cleansing that needs to take place before the service begins. We think of Joshua as a representative of the people. Uh, there needed to be a cleansing take place before this work could be completed, before this work could be accomplished. And so what we have here is this order of God being pointed to that we're not to try to strive and achieve things by our own means or by our own abilities. And I think that's very appropriate for today because I often find myself in positions where I'm thinking really hard about how to make something happen. And I don't know if you guys are like me, but, you know, if I do it this way and I go about it in that way and I get everybody here on this day, then I think, you know, it, it'll take place and the Lord will do uh, great things. Instead of just praying, Lord, will you do this great thing and will you help me day to day? I, I need help today. I can't worry about tomorrow. I don't even know if I have tomorrow. Um, that's a difficult thing to do because we tend to be creatures that fear down the road 
not too far down the road, but down the road a little bit, and we get caught up with what's going to happen 10 years from now uh, when we need to be worried about what happens today, what gets accomplished for the Lord today. And tomorrow worries about itself, is what the Bible says. Don't worry about it. It'll worry about itself. And um, we, don't need to, we don't need to be those, those kind of people. We need to be people that trust. We need to be people that are willing to obey and I think that's one of the big keys we have here. We see that a cleansing has already taken place. Um, filthiness has already been removed in that sense. One day God will put it away. But this is a curse going throughout the land. Does that strike fear into you? Does that make you afraid? My dad approached me the other day and he was talking about a portion he's been reading his Bible uh, praise the Lord. And he's been in Matthew, and he was reading through uh, a parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow, and he sowed good seed. And then it says the enemy came at night and sowed bad seed. And it said the wicked grew up with the righteous, and you have the wheat and the tares. And it said the angels came, and they say, do we pull them all out now? And he says, no, wait till the harvest, and then when you take them all up, throw all the tares in the fire. And it's this portion that, that makes a strict divide between the righteous and the wicked. And in our heart of hearts, when we think about it, we know we don't fall in the righteous category by ourselves, if we're willing to admit that. And I think it scared the disciples, because when you, when you see him asking, he, the Lord gave a number of parables, three, I think he gave three at the time, but they only asked him about the one. They wanted to know, does this really mean what we think it means? Because the question after that is, well, who survives? Who makes it? Like, who's righteous then? If, if the wicked all get, and, and the wickedness is just this small little thing that they've done, who would survive? And I think that's the question. The same thing with this curse that goes out through all the earth and will destroy everyone that's ever stolen or everyone that's ever sworn falsely by the name of the Lord. Any, any, remember, these two represent the whole. Any lie. We also think of the rich young ruler who came to the Lord. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord gives a number of commandments because, in a sense, I guess you could do it if you could be without sin. You could, I guess, in a sense, do it. And so the Lord tells him, this is what you must do. And he says, I've done all those from my youth. He didn't say before, you know, before his youth, but from his youth. As far as he could remember, he's done it all. And the Lord says, okay, one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And it said it went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And what was the Lord showing him? The Lord was showing him that he did not love the Lord his God with all his mind, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. It was evident in the fact that he didn't want to give up what, what he had for the Lord. So in that one act, we see that this man was shown he's not able to inherit eternal life. He's not able to achieve it on his own because the question is, what must I do? What must I do? We have here a curse that's going out, a curse that will consume. And if we were honest people and you didn't know the Lord, the question would be, what must I do to avoid this curse coming to my house and destroying me and everything I have? 
And it has to do with his servant, the branch, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that came to suffer. We say that he became a curse for us. This idea here as well. He hung on a tree. For a man to hang on a tree was a curse. Uh, for the law to be put on somebody, that was a curse. All these cursings, uh, we even think of the thorns being beaten onto his head. The thorn is a symbol of the curse of God in Genesis. Because of the sin, they, were, they had to till the ground and thorns and thistles would come up and that would be a symbol of the curse of sin. Beaten on the Lord's head. We think of the Lord bearing the curse of God for us. The same way we see Joshua in filthy garments, we are no different. We are the same way, filthy garments. And we see that the only way is for the Lord to say, remove them and give them a clean robe. And we see there's only one way, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. He shed his blood so that we could be cleansed from our filth, from our sin. We have here in this idea that judgment is going to take place at this current time, and it's actually going to go out to many of Israel's enemies. And we'll see that continue uh, perhaps tonight. Um, this judgment that goes out from God, and indeed the result of it. Ultimately, Israel will have its place. Ultimately, they will be in the land, the church will be raptured, and the whole world will basically turn against Israel and try to destroy them, and which is basically what the world's been trying to do uh, for millennium now. They've tried, but they haven't been able to. It is the one strange thing in history to have so much hate against one group of people and yet for that group of people to still exist and to still be identifiable. So what we have here is this idea. For us as an application, are you afraid of the curse coming to your home? Are you afraid of the curse coming and consuming you? If you've trusted Christ, you're not afraid because we know he's already paid it. If you haven't trusted Christ, you should be afraid. That's the point of the passage. And if you haven't trusted Christ, you, you do need to talk to one of us. So what we can learn from this morning's message, a few things. We have to be cleansed before we can serve. Can't serve with dirty hands. The Lord gets no glory in that. And it's something that we need to do. We need to confess. We need to acknowledge our sin. We need to repent. And we need to continue doing the work. Um, that's one thing. We need to understand that it's by the Spirit of God, not by our own might. We need to not despise the day of small things. Remember, we only have today. Uh, let's make it count. And what may seem small, even in our own eyes, may be big for someone else. We know it's big for the Lord, but it may also be big for someone else. Uh, we have a meeting today at 2.30 uh, for evangelism. If you are interested in helping out in a small thing, uh, see Russ so we can get a head count uh, for everybody that will be involved and uh, that we can see the Lord lifted up and glorified. Again, not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. Uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank thee for this time you've given to us to open your word. Uh, we thank you, uh, Father, that even though this was a message to Zechariah and to the children of Israel at this time, that it is such a blessing to us. Uh, we pray that it would encourage our hearts, that it would let us know that your work is still to be accomplished in this world and that we are still uh, here to be used. We pray, Father, that we would be uh, cleansed of all of our uh, sin and wickedness and doubt. Father, that we would strive forward with pure and clean hearts and that we would allow the Spirit of God to work in and through us. Uh, we ask for the rest of this day, for this meeting this afternoon, and for tonight to all be glorifying to your name. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.